Hello, and welcome to the History of the Church of Jesus Christ. Episode 21, Accelerating Change in America, Part 1, The Conquests. On August 3rd, 1492, Columbus took to the sea with three ships, a Carrick, the Santa Maria, Excalega, and two caravels, the Santa Clara, who's the one, and one whose name was lost to history, known to history as the Pinta, after its painted exterior. The Santa Clara was nicknamed Nina, after its owner, Juan Nino. The Nina, Pinta, and Santa Maria arrived on an island on October 12th. Columbus thought that he had reached an island off the coast of Asia. In reality, he had arrived in what is now the Bahamas in the Caribbean. He named the island San Salvador, or Holy Savior. He soon met the natives who he called who called the island Guanahani. The indigenous people Columbus came across were the Lucayan, Taino, and Arawak. They were peaceful and friendly. Columbus called them Indus, or Indians. According to historical accounts, Columbus noticed that one Ara Arawak man in particular had some gold jewelry. He took this man and demanded that he guide the Spanish crew to the source of the gold. That same day, on the 12th of October, Columbus wrote in his journal, quote, Many of the people I have seen have scars on their bodies, and when I may have made signs to them to find out how this happened, they indicated that people from, uh, from other nearby islands come to San Salvador to capture them. They defend themselves as the best they can. I believe the people from the mainland come here to take them as slaves. They ought to make good and skilled servants, for they repeat very quickly whatever we say to them. I think they can easily be, very easily be made Christians, for they seem to have no religion. If it pleases our Lord, we will take them to, our, to your highnesses when I depart, in order that they may learn our language." End quote. While members of the church and, and the Book of Mormon prophet Nephi see Columbus as divinely inspired to cross the sea to open the new world to the Europeans, it is obvious that Columbus had some sinister motives for exploration. This shouldn't come as a shock to anyone, as both the Bible and the Book of Mormon describe how God can use people with bad intentions to carry out the works of God. For example, God allowed wicked Lamanites and other peoples to attack Nephites and humble them into righteousness. God also allowed the Assyrians and Babylonians to carry parts of his chosen people of Israel. I'm not going to make a judgment on the character of Christopher Columbus, but the evidence from the conqueror himself does not paint him in a positive light. But as members of the church believe that the Gentiles, or non-Jews, named the Europeans in this case, were meant to bring Christianity to the New World to prepare the way for the, second, for the coming forth of the Book of Mormon and the restoration of the Gospel, it would seem that some guiding hand did guide his journey across the sea. Unfortunately, human interests got in the way and it resulted in genocide, namely greed for gold and slaves, disregard for human life, and racism. Terrible and devastating epidemics that decimated the indigenous populations swept across the Americas, outpacing the Europeans themselves. The fact that the Americas seemed so empty because a huge amount of people had died only fueled the idea that the Europeans had a God-given right to the Americas. 
Due to the prophecies of the Book of Mormon, the matter of the Europeans' divine right to expand into the New World and conquer and subjugate its native peoples is extremely complicated. I can explain in another episode exactly why this is. I can just say that, in my opinion, knowing from the Book of Mormon that the genocide and disease and death was going to happen anyway is no comfort, and it should not comfort us. People, our brothers and sisters, still died. Some in brutal and horrifying ways. I still mourn this loss of innocent life, and I do not seek to justify these acts in any, in any way. Neither will I demonize the conquerors. What they did was wrong, period. Still, I have no right, nor do I have enough information, to demonize anyone in, in history, as much as I, have, as I might be inclined to do so. To make a long story short, I am no fan of genocide, and I feel deep sadness when discussing or thinking about this long, dark chapter of history. Despite this, I will endeavor to tell the story of the exploration of the New World from an unbiased perspective. Knowing that he would be appointed governor of any territory he found, as agreed by Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain, and noting that the Taino, Arawak, and Lucayan people had primitive weapons, Columbus wrote, These people are very simple in warlike matters. I could conquer the whole of them with 50, with 50 men and govern them as I pleased. End quote. On October 28th, Columbus explored the northeast coast of Cuba. About a month later, the Pinta was taken by its captain to an unauthorized search for an island that, that supposedly had a surplus of gold. On December 5th, Columbus explored the island of Hispaniola, modern Haiti and Dominican Republic. On Christmas Day, the Santa, Ma Santa Maria had to be abandoned. With permission from the Kisiki, the or leader of the tribe, Guacanigari, Columbus left 39 men behind to found the first European settlement in the New World, La Navidad, named after the holiday on which he was founded in modern Haiti. Taking a few more prisoners, Columbus aboard the Nina came across the Pinta and its, and its captain. Together, they continued to explore Hispaniola. On January 13th, 1493, they found the Siguayos, who refused to try trade with the Spanish. A fight ensued, with two Siguayos being injured. Some, somewhere between 10 and 25 natives were kidnapped and taken back to Spain. Only 7 or 8 survived the journey. After a brief stop in the Azores, during which Columbus and his crew were taken prisoner by the Portuguese, thought to be pirates, then were released, they continued on to, to Europe. On March 4th, they arrived in Lisbon, Portugal. Columbus met with the Portuguese king, John II, who claimed that the voyage violated the 1479 Treaty of Alcasovas, which divided the Atlantic Ocean and overseas territories into two zones of influence. Supposedly, John sent assassins to kill Columbus before he could reach Spain. They were unsuccessful, and on March 15, 1493, Columbus arrived in Spain and word of his exploration spread like wildfire across Europe. By 1494, Columbus's letter on the first voyage was published in Rome, Basel, Paris, Antwerp, and other major cities in Europe, both in Spanish and Latin, then in other vernacular languages. In the letter, besides incorrectly asserting that he had reached the Indian Ocean, Columbus urged the Catholic monarchs, Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain, to send him back to his newfound lands 
to bring back immense riches. Columbus did, indeed, return to the New World. He did so three more times, four total voyages. The second voyage, which began in September 1493, had a more diverse crew, including priests, farmers, soldiers, and possibly even free blacks. In November, he arrived in Dominica, named after the Latin word for Sunday. He explored many islands in the Lesser Antilles until he got to Puerto Rico and the Greater Antilles. Upon reaching Hispaniola, Columbus found that the fort of La Navidad had been destroyed by the native peoples. 62 miles, or more than 100 kilometers east of Navidad, was established La Isabella, which also proved to be a short-lived settlement. On Columbus's third voyage, which began in May 1498, six ships left Spain. Three went straight to Hispaniola to resupply La Isabella. The other three went south to the Lesser Antilles in search of a continent theorized by John II of Portugal, which was southwest of the Cape Verde Islands. He supposedly knew about this because he had believed that the West Africans had already made contact with the inhabitants of, the co of this continent. Eventually, later in the summer of 1498, Columbus quote-unquote discovered South, South America. I use quotation marks because, of course, South America was never lost, nor did it need to be discovered, but rather it was open to European contact. He explored what is now Venezuela, near the delta of the Orinoco River, exploring the new continent. Columbus correctly interpreted the enormous quantity of fresh water that the Orinoco delivered into the Atlantic Ocean as evidence that he had reached a large land mass, rather than another island. Ever religious, he thought that the Garden of Eden might be located on this land mass. Columbus continued his exploration of the islands of the Caribbean, ending at Hispaniola on August 19th. In poor health, he found a mutinous group of settlers. They claimed that Columbus had mis misled them about the amount of riches to be found on the islands. Columbus had some of them hanged for disobedience. Due to accusations of tyranny on the part of Columbus, he was later arrested and transported to Spain in chains to be tried by the crown. He was eventually freed and allowed to return to the New World, but he had lost his position as governor. On another sadder note, the enslavement of indigenous peoples had already begun on the island of Hispaniola, and few, mainly the clergy who had accompanied Columbus, cared to baptize them. On Columbus' fourth and final voyage, he searched fruitlessly for the Strait of Malacca. He didn't know that he was on the wrong hemisphere. On June 15, 1502, they landed at Martinique, but sought refuge in, on Hispaniola as a hurricane was raging in the Caribbean. The new governor refused to let Columbus land, forcing him to take shelter elsewhere on the island. The new governor also ignored Columbus's warning about the hurricane resulting in the first Spanish treasure fleet sailing right into the storm. Only one of the 30 ships survived, and 500 people died, including the governor, Francisco de Bobadilla. Columbus and his crew survived with minor damages to the ships. They went on to explore the east coast of Central America, and they were told by the Ngobi tribe that there was gold there, as well as a strait to another ocean. An attempt to cross Central America via the Belen River resulted in an attack by a group of natives, one ship being stranded, and all being damaged by shipworms. In April 1503, he left for Hispaniola. After a large storm had that inflicted heavy damage on the ships off the coast of Cuba, they returned the way that they'd come and beached in Jamaica, where they were stranded. A Spaniard and some natives took a canoe to Hispaniola to ask for help, but the governor refused to help. Eventually, help did arrive, 
and Columbus and his men arrived in Spain on November 7, 1504. Christopher Columbus would die less than two years later, still believing he had reached Asia and the Pacific. Another explorer would reveal that, to the world that it was not part of Asia that Columbus had explored, but an entirely new continent. The Italian Amerigo Vespucci, sometime around the turn of the 16th century, or around 1500, reportedly took part in a Spanish expedition that intended to sail into the Indian Ocean around Africa. Part of the expedition split off to sail to what is now South America. They explored the mouth of the Amazon River before sailing north to Hispaniola. A year later, he explored. He joined another voyage, this time for Portugal, which sailed along the coast of South America to the Bay of Rio de, Rio de Janeiro. According to his own account, the crew sailed all the way to, to Patagonia before turning back, though this is doubtful. It was on this expedition that Vespucci decided he was not even close to Asia, but had in fact arrived at a new world, a previously unknown continent. Due to Vespucci's writings and his service to Spain, a German mapmaker in 1507 named the decidedly new continent America, after the feminine form of the Latinized Amerigo Vespucci. There are many other explorers of the New World. In 1497, Italian explorer John Cabot, who on behalf of England, landed on the North American coast, the first European to do so since the Vikings of the 11th century. The vast majority of the other explorers were employed by Spain and Portugal, who had the world divided by the Pope in the Treaty of Tordesillas in 1494. In 1500, Pedro Alvarez Cabral led the Portuguese to explore and settle Brazil. Juan Ponce de Leon conquered Florida after 1513. Vasco Nunes de Balboa crossed the Isthmus of Panama and claimed the Pacific Ocean and all the land that it touched for Spain. There were several reasons to explore, to explore. Many searched for riches and gold, which the Europeans were convinced could be found in preposterous amounts in any given region of the New World. To their credit, there could be found, there were some cities that had substantial amounts of gold and riches, which the Europeans, namely the Spanish, swiftly conquered. The two most famous ins instances of these conquests are Cortes and the conquest of Mexico, and Pizarro and the conquest of the Incas. Unfortunately, I've already lingered too long in the narrative on the early explorers, which I will ex while I will examine the Cortes and Pizarro before moving on. I cannot give the context and history of the Aztecs and Incas, for any or any of the great American civilizations. The Latin American History Podcast does an excellent job of covering not only the story of these civilizations, but also the exploration and colonization by the Europeans. What I will say about the Aztecs is that they had their own enemies, even before Hernan Cortes arrived in 1519. Cortes took advantage of the political situation to ally himself with those who sought to throw off the Aztec yoke. From February 1520 to August 1521, the Spanish and their indigenous allies worked to destroy the Aztec Empire and capture its capital at Tenochtitlan. On May 22, 1520, a feast was held in honor of one of the Aztec gods and Moctezuma II, the conquered leader of the empire. He asked, he asked Cortes' deputy governor to allow his people to celebrate. Cortes himself was off fighting a party sent by Spain to arrest him. After the festivities started, the deputy closed the doors, locking many of the Aztecs within the great temple of Tenochtitlan. He then proceeded to massacre almost everyone, with a few managing to escape by scaling the walls to warn the others. 
This act of treachery led the Aztecs to fight back with full force against the Spanish invaders. This resulted in La Noche Triste, or the Sad Night, in which many Spanish were killed and the rest retreated from the city. The Spanish under Cortes returned with their allies and with reinforcements on August 13, 1521. And the previously flourishing Aztec Empire was significantly weakened by famine and smallpox. Thus, they easily overtook Tenochtitlan and established Mexico City in its ruins, claiming the area for Spain and giving it the name of New Spain. Later, Francisco Pizarro followed Cortes' example in overthrowing the Inca Empire. They used enemies of the Inca to get, gain a foothold in the area and prepare for conquest. In 1532, the Battle, or Massacre, of Cajamarca broke out while, while, when the Inca leader, Atahualpa, threw or dropped the Bible the Spanish had handed him on the ground, and the Spanish came out from their hiding places and started to mow down the Inca, capturing Atahualpa. Complete victory over the Inca people did not come until 1572. The Viceroy of Peru was established by the Spanish in 1542. Like the Aztecs, the Inca were subject to disease and political strife prior to the Battle of, prior to and following the Battle of Cajamarca. This disease, probably smallpox, killed the king and heir to the Inca throne, resulting in a devastating civil war. That was the climate of the Inca Empire when Pizarro arrived. Hernando de Soto played an important role in Pizarro's conquest of the Inca Empire, but is best known for leading the first Spanish and also the first European expedition deep into the territory of the modern-day United States. He explored what is now Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and possibly Arkansas, being the first European documented as having crossed the Mississippi River. Like others before him, he was searching for gold and for a passage into Asia. He died in 1542 on the banks of the Mississippi. Around the same time, Francisco Vasquez de Coronado led a huge expedition from Mexico to present-day Kansas through the modern southwest United States. He was the first European to see the Grand Canyon and the Colorado River. Though both De Soto and Coronado were Spanish, the Spanish weren't the only ones exploring North America. Jacques Cartier claimed what is now Canada for France and became the first European to describe and map the Gulf of St. Lawrence. His three voyages took place from 1534 to 1542. Henry Hudson was among those Europeans who searched for a northeast passage to China. He was first hired by England, then later by the Dutch East India Company. In 1609, he explored the area around modern New York City, sailing up the Hudson River and laying the foundation for Dutch exploration of that area. He also discovered the huge Hudson Bay, he was set adrift by a mutinous crew in 1611 when they refused to follow his orders to move on. Samuel de Champlain, the father of New France, made 21 to 29 trips across the Atlantic. On July 3, 1608, he founded Quebec City, and thus New France. When the Pope allowed for the exploration of the New World at the end of the 15th century, he requested that the explorers and colonizers work to Christianize the people as they came across. The process of Christianization was at first violent. When the first Franciscans arrived in, in Mexico in 1524, they burned the places dedicated to the pagan cult, alienated much of the local population. In the 1530s, they began to adapt Christian practices to local customs, including the building of, a, of new churches on the sites of ancient places of worship. 
leading to a mix of Old World Christianity with local with local religions. The Spanish Roman Catholic Church, needing the natives' labor and cooperation, evangelized in Quechua, Nahuatl, Guarani, and other Native American languages, contributing to the expansion of these indigenous languages and equipping some of them with writing systems. One of the first primitive schools for Native Americans was founded by Fray Pedro de Gante, in 1523. The first European settlement in Brazil was founded in 1532 by the Portuguese. Two years later, King John III of Portugal divided the explored portion of Brazil into 15 private and autonomous captaincies colonies of Brazil. This pr proved to be problematic and disorganized, so the king restructured them into the Governorate General of Brazil, a single Portuguese colony in South, Amer South America. In the 16th century, the cane sugar industry exploded in Brazil, sugar becoming its largest export. With this, African slaves became its biggest import. As demand for Brazilian sugar rose through the, throughout the world, so did the demand for slaves. By the end of the 17th century, the sugar industry began to die down, just as gold was discovered by the Bandoranches in the 1690s. The Brazilian gold rush attracted thousands of new settlers to Brazil from Portugal and other Portuguese colonies. In the early 18th century, the War of the Emboabas would break over, break out over the newly discovered gold fields, fought primarily between the old and new settlers. And the Portuguese were not the only ones with eyes on treasures of Brazil. The French established colonies in Rio de Janeiro during the 1560s and in Maranhão during the 1610s. The Dutch presence in Bahia and Pernambuco, both in the northeast region of Brazil, would lead to conflict notably in the Dutch-Portuguese War that followed the end of the Iberian Union. Just as a side note, the Iberian Union lasted from 1580 to 1640, during which the Spanish and Portuguese empires were under the, the Spanish Habsburg kings, Philip II, Philip III, and Philip IV. There were some attempts to resist the Portuguese in Brazil, notably the Quilombo of Palmares, a major slave rebellion, and the Minas Conspiracy, which was supposed to be a major overthrow of the government in the province of Minas Gerais. Brazilian independence came on September 7, 1822. Napoleon its advances in the Peninsular War caused the Portuguese royal court to flee the Old World to establish a new capital at Rio de Janeiro in 1807. In 1815, King John VI of Portugal made Brazil an equal partner in the United Kingdom of Portugal, Brazil, and the Algarves. No longer a colony, Brazil enjoyed seven years with Dom Pedro as Prince Regent. In 1820, the Constitutionalist Revolution in Portugal caused the king to have to return to Portugal, leaving Dom Pedro in charge of Brazil in 1821. A rebellion broke out and it quickly spread. On September 7, 1822, Dom Pedro gave the cry of Iparanga in the province of São Paulo, in which he might have declared Brazilians, independence, or death. The people declared Dom Pedro to be the emperor of Brazil. A war of independence ensued in which thousands of Portuguese and Brazilians died, but by 1824, Brazil was de facto independent. There were also rebellions, some big and some small, in the Spanish Empire. One large uprising was the Pueblo Revolt of 1680, also known as Pope's Rebellion. The indigenous Pueblo people in present-day New Mexico and the United States 
killed 400 Spanish settlers and drove the remaining 2,000 from the province of Santa Fe de Nuevo Mexico. Their victory was short, as 12 years later the Spanish would re return and reoccupy New Mexico. To the south, in the Yucatan Peninsula, the Spanish led a long campaign against the Maya peoples, which lasted from 1551 to 1697. The Vice of New Spain, as the present-day nation of Mexico was called, was established in 1535 with the Viceroy Don Antonio de Mendoza. Spain would continue to exert control over Mexico politically until September 27, 1821, when Mexico gained its independence after an 11-year war and had its influence, religious influence through Sp Spanish missions in California until the Mexican Secularization Act of 1833. Right after gaining independence, the Mexican Empire was established. In 1823, the government changed to a federal republic due to internal conflicts and as a result of the separation of Central America from Mexico. In 1527, the first Spanish settlement was built in the area of Rio de la Plata, next to the Padana River. Buenos Aires was established in 1536 in modern-day Argentina. Just a year later, Asuncion in modern Paraguay was established. Buenos Aires was abandoned in 1541 after repeated attacks by the indigenous peoples. Settlers from Asuncion re-established Buenos Aires in 1580, which, in 1776, became the capital of the new viceroyalty of the Rio de la Plata. To the north, in modern-day Colombia, by 1543 the Spanish conquered the Muisca Confederation and set up the new Kingdom of Granada. At first it was included in the Viceroyalty of Peru, but later the Audiencia, or Court, of Bogota was established in 1549. The kingdom became a viceroyalty from 1717 to 1739. The people of New Granada began to fight for their independence in the early 19th century, which resulted in the establishment of Gran Colombia in 1819, thanks to the efforts of Simon Bolivar. Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast does an excellent and detailed job of describing the career of Simon Bolivar and the South American Wars of Independence. Quebec, and thus New France, was founded in 1608, after several attempts to create colonies. Montreal was founded in 1642. Jolet and Marquette founded more cities in the mid to late 17th century, and explored the Mississippi River. Another famous French explorer called La Salle continued their work, and established a network of forts from the New Gulf of Mexico to the Great Lakes and the St. Lawrence River, including ones along the Mississippi. French expansion in North America continued into the 18th century, with New Orleans being founded in 1718, and Baton Rouge a year later. The French took advantage of good relations with the indigenous peoples in North America. A 19th century historian, Francis Parkman, said that, quote, Spanish civilization crushed the Indian. English civilization scorned and neglected him. French civilization embraced and cherished him. End quote. The French did treat the natives relatively well, and in 1627 it extended the status of natural Frenchmen to the natives who converted to Catholicism. This wasn't done out of the kindness of the heart of Louis XIV, but was an effort to, to increase the population of New France. By the time the Seven Years' War, or French and Indian War as it was is taught in the United States, broke out in 1754, the French were outnumbered by the British. 
In fact, there were, there were 20 British colonists for every one French colonist. The Dutch also got into the colonization game in the 17th century. By 1660, the Dutch had colonized modern-day New Jersey and parts of Pennsylvania, New York, Delaware, and Connecticut. They took over a Swedish colony established in 1638 called New Sweden. In the Second Anglo-Dutch War, which ended in 1667, the Dutch lost their claims in New Netherlands, receiving Suriname in, ex in exchange. In the Third Anglo-Dutch War, the Dutch briefly regained their North American territory, but lost them once again to England. England's at first attempts to at founding a permanent English colony in North America was at Roanoke, an island in what is today North Carolina. Sir Walter Raleigh, one of the Queen Elizabeth's favorites, sponsored the colony. The first arrival was in 1585. The colonists began to till the soil and erect buildings. But they didn't have enough supplies to form a permanent colony, and the relations with the natives were not good. Sir Francis Drake took many of the colonists back to England to get aid. A year later, John White, the governor of Roanoke, arrived in 1587. His granddaughter, Virginia Dare was born short, shortly thereafter, earning the distinction of the first English child born in the New World. Dare County, North Carolina, the present-day location of Roanoke, was named after her. Governor White left for England that same year, and was unable to return until 1590 due to the Anglo-Spanish War. When he arrived, the whole colony had disappeared, and the word Croatoan had been carved into a post. It is a mystery as to whether or not the colony was massacred, or if it took refuge with a neighboring tribe. The houses and fortifications of Roanoke had been dismantled, suggesting that their departure was not rushed. While they colonized the territory that would become known as the United States, the English were also establishing colonies in Canada and the Caribbean. Bermuda, first settled in 1609, remains under British control. Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, and other colonies were established in eastern Canada and would later compete with the colonies of New France. Queen Elizabeth died in 1603, and was succeeded by King James I. In 1607, the Virginia Company of London established James Fort on the east bank of the Powhatan River, which they renamed the James River. Jamestown, as it would later be known, was considered permanent in 1610, following an abandonment. It would, it would serve as the capital of the colony of Virginia from 1616 to 1699. The Paspahig tribe inhabited the land that Jamestown was settled on, and after a brief period of friendly relations, war soon broke out, leading to the total annihilation of the Paspahig within three years. From 1609 to 1610, there was a high mortality rate in Jamestown due to disease and starvation. This period was known as the Starving Time. The first non-English Europeans arrived in Jamestown just a year after it was founded, though many of them had defected to the Powhatan tribe, bringing with them weapons. The first Africans arrived in Jamestown in 1619. There were 50 men, women, and children brought by a captured Portuguese slave ship. They were initially treated as indentured servants, but later became slaves. In 1660, 40 years later, slavery was fully entrenched in Virginia, and the slaves worked in tobacco fields to produce the popular crop for Europeans. Also in 1619, the first, working, the first representative assembly in British America convened in J the Jamestown Church to establish a government. This would, would this become known as the House of Burgesses, later the Virginia Cent General Assembly. 
Only English colonists were allowed to vote, resulting in the first recorded strike in colonial America, in which Polish artisans refused to work until they got the vote. In 1622, the Powhatan Confederacy decided to eliminate the, the English colony once and for all. More than 300 settlers were killed, which made up a third of the colony's English population. From the time that Jamestown was founded until 1624, little more than half of the 6,000 colonists survived. In 1624, Virginia became a royal colony. Ten years later, Charles I divided it into eight counties. In 1644, there was another conflict between the Powhatan Confederacy and Jamestown, resulting in the death of the Powhatan chief and the Confederacy's decline. Treaties were drawn up that made, that made the nation, natives pay tribute to the English, and the Powhatan people were confined to reservations. In 1676, Nathaniel Bacon led a re rebellion of thousands of Virginians against Governor William Berkeley, resulting in the destruction of Jamestown. The capital of Virginia colony would, be, would permanently move to Williamsburg in 1699. The Powhatan Rebellion against the English was the first of five wars between the Europeans and the Native Americans from the pre-revolutionary era that I will cover on this podcast. The second was the Pequot War between the Pequot tribe and the alliance of the Massachusetts Bay, Plymouth, and Saybrook colonies, and some Native allies from the Narragansett and Mohegan tribes. These colonies and tribes are located in what would become known as New England. I will examine these colonies later. The Pequot War lasted from 1636 to 1638, and resulted in the death or captivity of 700 Pequots, many of which were sold into slavery into the West Indies. The war stemmed from a power vacuum created by a series of epidemics. There was already contention between the native tribes and the settlement of the Europeans in the region only exacerbated the contest for land. To make things worse, there was a massive hurricane in 1635 that ruined crops and made food scarce, just in time for winter. An English trader, well-respected, was killed in 1636, sparking the conflict. The English raided the Pequots, and the Pequots returned the favor with more raids. Roger Williams, an important person we will discuss later, urged the Narragansetts to side with the English against the Pequots. The Pequot raids continued throughout the winter and the spring of the next year. In May, a battle occurred that would qualify to be called a massacre at Mystic Fort, in which the English had fired a Pequot fort and killed any who managed to escape the blaze. Many of the surrounding Pequots abandoned their villages to flee west among the Mohawks. Near modern Fairfield, Connecticut, the English caught up to the refugees and killed nearly all the Pequot warriors. The women and children were taken prisoner, and some were sold into slavery. Others were, were granted asylum among other tribes, which were more friendly to the English. The English decreed that the Pequot tribe was to be disbanded, and its culture presumably to be forgotten. King Philip's War broke out in 1675, after 40 years of relative peace in the area. King Philip's real name was Metacom, or Metacomet. He was the second son of Massasoit, a helper of the English colonists whom we will discuss later, the chief and chief of the Wampanoag people. Metacom rose to become a sachem, or high chief, and sought to live in harmony with the colonists. He took the name of Philip and wore European clothes from Boston. His tribe was in danger, however. European expansion from the east and Iroquois expansion from the west threatened the existence of the Wampanoags. The colonial leaders of Plymouth Colony made him surrender his tribe's weapons and subjected him 
and his tribe to English law in 1671. As a result, in 1675, three Wampanoag tribesmen were hanged for murder. Tensions rose dramatically. The English and Wampanoags raided each other. The, greatest, the largest colony army yet seen in New England, numbering 1,000 militia and 150 native allies, gathered to attack the Narragansetts, which were officially neutral, but some of which were participating in raids against the colonists. The Great Swamp Fight broke out in December 1675. 150 men, women, and children were killed as the Narragansett's main fort was burned to the ground. This caused a pushback from the native coalition formed against the colonists. Many colonial towns were burned, including Providence, Rhode Island. But in the end, the English overwhelmed the natives, bringing the Wampanoags and their allies to the brink of destruction. About 3,000 natives and 1,000 colonists were killed. The, the war was the greatest calamity to occur in the 17th century New England, and is considered by many to be the deadliest war in the history of the American colonization. The result of this war was that the colonists, which received no help from their mother country, began to develop their own group identity separate from that of England. To the south, in colonial South Carolina, a war broke out in 1715 that lasted two years. This war was between the colonists and the following tribes, Yamasee, Muscogee, Cherokee, Catawba, Apalachee, Apalachicola, Uchi, Savannah River Shawnee, Congaree, Waxhaw, Pedee, Cape Fear, Chira, and others. This became simply known as the Yamasee War. Different tribes acted differently. Some fought with the English, others fought in their defense. There are many reasons for the natives to begin fighting with the colonists. Factors included land encroachment by the Europeans, the trading system, trader abuses, the Indian slave trade, the depletion of deer, increasing Indian debts in contrast with the increasing wealth among some colonists, the spread of rice plantation agriculture, French power in Louisiana offering an alternative to British trade, long established Indian links to Spanish Florida, the vying for power among Indian groups, as well as an increasing large-scale and robust intertribal communication network, and recent experiences in military collaboration among previously distant tribes. By 1715, tensions were astronomical, following the deaths of hundreds of colonists at the hands of natives. Traders were raided, and people of colonial South Carolina abandoned their frontier settlements to flee to Charlestown, where there were too many people and too few supplies. Starvation reigned. Many began to consider abandoning South Carolina altogether. In 1715, the Cherokee sided with the colonists against the creek, and the tides began to turn in favor of the colonists. The war ended in 1717, with colonists no longer facing annihilation. Still, 7% of South Carolina's citizens were dead. The war marks the end of the early colonial era of the American South. The Yamasee War and its aftermath contributed to the emergence of new Indian confe confederated nations, such as the Muscogee Creek and Catawba. The last of the five American wars discussed in today's episode is Pontiac's War, also known as Pontiac's Confederacy or Pontiac's Rebellion. It occurred in 1763 and lasted until 1766. 
A loose confederation of natives from the Great Lakes region was organized under Pontiac and other leaders. This war was a direct result of the Seven Years' War, or the French and Indian War, which I'll discuss later. Just know that the native tribes and their leaders were not content with the new British overlords, who had defeated the French and taken control of the region. The Confederation led raids on a number of British forts, destroying eight of them and killing or capturing hundreds of colonists. Many British colonists fled the region for the safer, more settled east coast. The British sent troops to put down the uprising, and by 1764 they were defeated. Peace negotiations would take another two years. Warfare on the frontier was brutal. Prisoners were often, would often be killed, civilians would be targeted, and there would be atrocities on both sides. Also in 1763, the British sent out a royal proclamation concerning the territory recently acquired from the French. King George III essentially drew a line down the Appalachian Mountains and forbade British colonists from crossing it onto the western side, which was supposed to be reserved for the, for the natives. This angered many colonists who had previously been given land grants in, that, in the western region. After Pontiac's war, the British government insisted on enforcing the line even more. The discontent of the colonists would only grow over time. Because I committed to doing shorter episodes, this episode will be divided in two. Today's episode focused on mainly on the conquest of the Americas by Europeans. Next time we will focus on the colonies founded by the Europeans, how they were founded and what they have to do with Christianity, and how they fulfilled the Bookworm prophecy. I'll see you all next time. Thanks for listening. And this has been the history of the Church of Jesus Christ.